0: Here we go. Rejecting the screen. It's a going ISO edition. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Stuck out West is Adam Stanko. Our guest today, Seth Greenberg, the two-time ACC Coach of the Year at Virginia Tech. Also head coaching stops at Long Beach State in South Florida. He's been a longtime college basketball analyst for ESPN. Coach, I want to start 1998 Game 6 NBA Finals when your former player at Long Beach State, Brian Russell, is defending Michael Jordan. Jordan pushes off. Bulls win the title. What was your experience watching the game, and how quickly did you hear from Russell after the game?
1: I talked to him that night, actually. Uh, I was sitting in my living room watching the game, and uh, he called that evening. I, it, it's, it's such a strange thing because, uh, you know, he, he felt bad. He let his team down. Brian Russell is one of the all-time selfless people that I've ever been around. And uh, he's just – he's an incredible guy who comes from nothing, self-made. No one recruited him. Uh, Frank Burleson, a dear friend of mine from, that was my beat writer at Long Beach State, actually um, was the guy who told me about him. He was up in San Bernardino at some Christmas tournament. I'm an assistant at Long Beach State. And he calls me literally for cell phones, from a payphone phone, uh, from the game. He says, there's a kid here. No one's recruiting. He is kicking Tracy McGrady's ass. Uh, uh, Tracy Murray's ass. And I said, huh? He goes, no one's recruiting a guy. So I got in the car the next morning, the uh, next day, went and watched him play. Uh legitimately, um he he no one was recruiting by uh, Cal State San Bernardino, no one was recruiting a guy. And uh it was about uh about a one-month recruitment and it was done and he was coming to our place. So B Russ, uh he was the first person that at my first game as a head coach who walked hand in hand with uh my daughter Paige into the arena. Uh, he's family to us. I mean, we just we love him to death. So he called him, and, and he felt like he let his team down. And he said, Coach, he pushed off and all that good stuff. And and he said, but I let I let Coach down. And I said, you know what? Coach had a confidence in you to guard the best player in the world. I said, uh, that shows you how much he thinks of you. Uh, what Was it a foul? Yeah, it was a foul. But, you know, you were the best person to guard Jordan in that moment in time. And you should, you know, understand that. And uh, you know Brian's a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. And it was just one of those moments. Uh, uh, a rough day for him, but I'm so proud of what he was at. I mean, I think it's 12 or 13 years in a league. I mean, the career he had as a second-round draft choice, as a guy that no one knew who he was until we played UNLV in the gold mine in front of 2,200 people, including the logo, Jerry West. And he absolutely locked up J.R. Ryder. And I think he had about 32 in that game. That was kind of his coming out party, and then after that, uh, he played really well in Portsmouth and ended up a second round draft choice. Uh, Jerry Sloan saw something in him, and he saw something in Carl Malone. Because I told him, "What should I?" He asked me, "What I should do, Coach? What should I do? What should I do when I go to camp?" I said, "Real <laughs> simple. Attach yourself to Carl Malone." And Carl kind of looked after him like a little brother, and it was really cool. And uh, when his opportunity was presented, he took advantage of it.
2: Coach, I want to ask you about about facing Jordan when you were when you were a college coach. But I'm just curious, based upon that story, how much do you miss those days of the recruiting scene being being different?
1: Yeah, that was a different time. Uh, you know, there was no such there was there were sleepers back then. Let's recruiting was different. College coaching was different because the money wasn't the same. So, like with the money being different, there was so much more camaraderie within the profession. Uh, you know you 'd go recruiting all night uh and then you'd go out to dinner with everyone. It wasn't espionage everyone't looking over their shoulder um, It was uh you had more people that got into coaching uh because they loved to coach, and recruiting just happened to be a part of the of the job so it was a different time, but uh I was very fortunate i, I i've been blessed i mean to work with the people that I work with uh to have the opportunity to become a head coach. Uh, three different times to uh, have a chance to coach the players that I had a chance to coach and to have a little bit of success I've had. I'm, no one's complaining here. So who were
0: those ultimate dinners with during those days of recruiting?
1: Oh, my God. Back in the day, it was unbelievable. First of all, it all started at the Five Star Camp, and I was just a, a basically a fly on the wall at the old Fireside uh, Lodge right below the Pennsylvania, where the camp was. Uh, and you know, sitting at the table was, we would kind of lean in. Now the guys that were leaning in, you gotta understand, were like myself, John Calipari, Rick Petino, uh, some of the people that people are very familiar with, but <laughs> you know, you were you were lis- you were listening to Bobby Knight, you were listening to Chuck Daly, you were listening to UB Brown, you were listening to a guy no one even heard of except if you're in New York, a guy named Marv Kessler, you were listening to uh the best coaches in the history of our game that would come up and lecture at the camp. You'd listen to George Raveling. You were listening to, and all we were doing is trying to kind of get a tidbit, develop a relationship. Uh, you know, it was a, uh, it was a different time. Jimmy Lyon and Roley Massimino. I mean, I could go on Lefty Drizelle. Uh You know, you could go on and on and on about the people that would sit at that table that we would all lean in and try to, listen and hear and learn and that was our, that was my basketball education between that and playing for Alabama who was Bob Knight's assistant in army and one of the great uh, innovators in college basketball I was right up there with coach Iba at volume Man defense uh, that's how you learned I learned more basketball five-star than I learned probably anywhere else in my life
2: out of that group coach any in particular that stood out at that time as the as the leaders of that group were mentors to you specifically in terms of coach Knight or Chuck Daly?
1: You know, we would ask questions. I mean, I mean, like coach Brown was kind of all our mentor. Uh, I mean, he was a big part of the five-star family. He was still in college at the time. as an assistant at Duke. There were two people that when we grew up in a five-star family, there were two people that probably had the greatest impact on all the younger coaches. And that was probably coach Brown uh, and Rick Pitino. Cause he was the first of us to get out. He was the first of us to uh, climb the ladder. He was the first of us to get an assistant coaching job. He was the first of us to get a head coaching job. He was the first of us to have tremendous success. So, uh, you know, I would say that, um, you know, Rick was the guy that basically built the bridge, although Howie Garfinkel and Will Klein really built the bridge for all of us to cross, uh, to pursue our, our, our dreams. But, you know, people that had influence in my life, Terry Holland had a huge influence. When I got let go of Pitt, uh, one of the first phone calls I got was from Dave Odom, who was an assistant coach to Terry Holland. And I say all the time, I never made a major decision in my life, including asking my wife to marry me, without consulting mm. Terry Holland. So, uh, Dave Odom, who was on his staff, was obviously a big part of my life. You know, it was just a different time then. It was an unbelievable fraternity of coaches. Uh, that all had shared experiences and all lived lived it i mean i spent you know 12 weeks in the summer going camp to camp to camp six of them being five star uh working camps doing stations teaching uh, you know teaching uh, individual instruction coaching teams reffing games <clears throat> sitting up all night uh talking ball uh that's what you did you know i mean like the end of five star when it moved to pittsburgh at the end of the night You'd go over to the ground round or Denny's, mm-hmm. Garth would fall asleep at his, his dinner and you'd be sitting with <laughs> the greatest coaches of the game. Garf would be screaming for lemonade and, and then he'd pass <laughs> out, fall asleep and you know, you'd you be sitting with, you know, Ralph Willard and Rick Pitino and, and, I mean, and, and, and some of the, you know, and you'd be Brown and, and, and all these great coaches and then the people I grew up with the jerry Wainwright's and and the cows and the John robix and the, you know the people you know you know my brother and and i mean there was if you look at the number of coaches you know pat Quigley's and the, the Ray Mollis's, the great high school coaches that you know passed through the camp um it was it was a different time and and it's, I feel bad for young coaches today because they don't have that um classroom that we had to fall in love with the game, fall in love with coaching, fall in love with coaching, not for money. Because my first job at Columbia, I had no idea what I was getting paid. I never even asked. Never even asked. I had. I mean, like literally I had no idea. until like, I got, And I got my first paycheck, and I thought I was a millionaire. And I was making fall <laughs> 5 <laughs> So, I mean, like we didn't get into coaching for money. None of us. Never, none of us thought we were going to get rich getting into coaching. This is just something that we fell in love with. I fell in love with the game. My dad played for the great Claire B. That was probably my first motivation. Coach B used to come and visit his former players in the summers because he was recruiting uh, kids to go to the Kutcher's camp. And uh, so he went, one night he came to visit us and stayed at our house. And uh, I still remember as a little kid, you know, sitting in front of a fireplace, falling asleep, listening to him tell stories. So, And then, you know, I thought, what a cool thing that here's a guy that, and I didn't know he was Claire B at the time, obviously. It was just my dad's former coach at LIU that took the time to come and see him. I thought that was like that blew my mind. And I said, man, that's the impact that he had on my dad. And, you know, it would be cool to have an impact on someone else.
2: No, before we get on to the rest of the show, I want to tell our listeners about one of the ultimate life hacks. You see, even while everyone's at home right now, if you're like me and have your hands full with the family and researching Jason Kidd's career PER numbers, it's hard to find the time to sit down to read. When you don't have free time to yourself, you can't read or work on personal development. Well, there's an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information, from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book, and while you probably don't have a commute right now and your kids might be impeding on your lunch break, you can always sneak in 15 minutes to listen while you exercise or just go out to walk the dogs. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and I was turned on to Blinkist by a friend of mine who's a successful sports TV host. He told me he wanted to learn about some new subjects that he knew he'd never devote the time to read an entire book on. And that's what hooked me. I've come to love Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I feel like I can start to gain expertise on a subject without having to actually read the book. Sure, I'd love to lay down on a beach somewhere and enjoy reading an entire book cover to cover, but with the three kids and obviously no beach plans in the near future, that just ain't happening. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our rejecting the screen audience. Go to Blinkist.com NBA, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com NBA to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com NBA. We had Earl Watson on about
0: a month and a half ago. And he got into a Hubie Brown story coach. And and he said that when Hubie took over Memphis, he didn't know Hubie's background. And so when Jerry West Mm -hmm. brought him into the room, in his head, he said, We hired the fucking TNT guy. And he was already in his head. And in his head, he said, I gotta call Bob Myers, I gotta call Bob, Bob Myers' agent this time, and said, Yeah, we gotta get this. Uh, I got to get out of here. Like we hired, we hired the TNT guy and then West introduces Hubie and Hubie looks at everybody and says, first thing he says, you're all fucking losers. And do you know how I know that? <laughs> because if you weren't, the other guy wouldn't be packing up his family right now. Do you have a, do you have a Hubie, do you have a Hubie story on that type of level?
1: I have a couple, a couple of different stories. First, I'll go with the other Brown, Larry Brown. Um, uh, mm. You know, one of my favorite Larry Brown stories, I'm, I am the head coach at Long Beach State. So I knew Coach Brown, his family's agent, um, or his agent is guy named Joe Glass, His son. Keith Glass is a dear friend of mine. And yeah. uh, so I'm at Long Beach, and my two Larry Brown stories are, uh, you know, I say, look, I'd love to go to training camp. He's the coach at Clippers. I'd love to stop by training camp. So I call Coach, uh, I have Keith call Coach Brown. Coach Brown arranges it. Next thing I know, not am I at training camp. I'm sitting in the coaches' meeting. Now I'm I'm a 29 year old head coach, Long Beach State, maybe 28, 28, 29 years old. I'm sitting in the back of the room. There's Coach Schuler, there's coach, uh, uh, coach Blair, his staff, Coach Brown's at the head of the table, and they're talking, and I'm just sitting in the back after practice, and uh, and I'm uh, running my own business, just paying attention and trying to be like invisible basically and they're talking press offense and all of a sudden out of the blue coach brown goes "Seth, what's your favorite press offense and i'm like stumbling and bumbling (laughs) i mean you know I i mean i can't i mean i'm spitting all over myself and i say something like well you got coach shuler coach blair coach i mean you know, Coach Schuler and you know, Coach Blair was at Colorado. Coach Schuler had all his set. That 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 that. He goes, Seth. I asked you what your best, pra- your favorite press <laughs> office is. <laughs> like, shut up and talk to me. And then uh, Coach Brown was. Uh, he was. He was with the Knicks, and I was an assistant coach. I think it was at Columbia at the time. And um, I wanted to go to the training camp. And uh, so I called uh, Garf. He gives me Coach Brown's number, and I go to training camp and after training camp uh coach brown invites me up to uh to his suite uh to have lunch and now you know and I, i've been around coach brown a lot he recruited my brother and you know because of the relationships that we developed at five star i mean i mean he was you know i'd say a mentor someone that you know we obviously looked up to had numerous conversations with him and he was always harsh you know hey you know i mean usually you know, he always had his way but uh <laughs> You know, at the time, yeah, I remember him saying this and, uh, and I was asking him some questions. He was talking about practice and he had practice organized. You gotta remember Yule Brown played for my college coach, and UB Brown's dad was my was my college coach's trainer. So he played for mm-hmm. Alabama. So we had a I was I was part of a little bit of a family tree. And uh and Coach Brown looks at me as only he looks, and I'll give you one other great Coach Brown story, it's a great story, but and he looks at me, he goes, remember this. If you can't coach your best fucking player, you can't coach your team.
3: Mm.
1: And, makes and a lot of sense. Good, basically he's saying, don't be afraid to coach your best player. Because mm. he was pretty hard on Kenny Walker that day in practice. And then the other great cra- Coach Brown story is I'm in Italy doing a coaching clinic for Benetton Basket. Mike D'Antoni is the head coach of Benetton Basket. And we went over from Mauricio Garardini brought us over to do these clinics for Benetton and for the, Israel, uh, for the Italian Coaches Association. So we're sitting at this dinner place, uh, Coach Baroni, myself, I'm not sure if Billy Baino was on that trip or not. And Coach Brown's daughter was about to get married uh, in the next few weeks. So I have three daughters. So, you know, somehow I kind of asked, I, I said, Coach, i like, before you go to get married, I'm like, how do you handle that? And he goes, let me tell you something. That's how I handle it. Now he puts his arm right on my neck. And he's about eight <laughs> inches away from me. And you know, you never knew when Coach was looking at you because of his eye and uh his eyes and he uh he said I, I took him out to to dinner, my son my future son in law. And I said, I'll tell you, marriage could be tough. There are good times and there are bad times. And I'm always here for you, no matter what. But if you ever lay a hand on my daughter in a mean-spirited, aggressive way, I will fucking kill you.
3: <laughs> and and now
1: he's grip—he's gripping my neck, and he's about two inches from my face. Everyone at the table is about leaning over, like leaning in, <laughs> and and I am, and my steak is sizzling on this hot piece of uh rock and i am i am hotter than the state because i'm about ready to just shit in my pants and uh that was uh that was a that was a true uh true coach Brown story but he, he he was always he was always willing to help younger coaches i mean and that's the thing whether it was larry brown, Jimmy brown rick you know later on um i uh Those guys were always willing to help younger coaches, and that's just so important.
2: Seth, who were the uh, top players at Five Star at that time?
1: Name a great player. You know who was a player at Five Star when I was a camper was Moses Malone. So Dave Odom told me one day, we're in Pittsburgh, Five Star Pittsburgh. Dave Odom was an assistant at Wake at the time. I think he just finished being a coach at Durham High. Joe Ward was the best player in college basketball, high school basketball that year. Jumping Joe Ward, he ended up going to Georgia. And Dave Odom uh, comes up to me and goes, "There's a kid at camp no one knows about. I'm telling you, he's ridiculous. He's in a little small town, North Carolina, and no one knows even who he is." He said, "He's um, as Dave Odom would always say, unbelievable. He's unbelievable." And I'd say, oh, yeah. "He goes, he goes, go to tryouts." He goes. Don't worry. He'll jump out. So does this guy at tryouts, and he's running and jumping and making plays and scoring baskets, and, and he looks really good. And the draft comes, and Garf goes. Well, oh, Joe Ward, he's the big. Now he's got to be number one pick in the draft. He's so so. again. Yeah, all right. So anyway, the draft goes through. The first game, this player plays against Joe Ward. Now you only play. You play either the first and third, or the second fourth at, at five-star. The best players play the second and fourth. The guys that aren't as good play the first and third. So you're playing the same level players against mm. each other. And then you have mm-hmm. a horse. He he could play as much as you, you wanted, but no one played the whole game. So uh, all of a sudden on the main court, Pittsburgh, which is court three, there's this game going on. And, you know, there are coaches around all of a sudden there's about 20 people watching it. So there's 350 kids at camp. There's eight courts going on at once. So half of the camp is playing, half of the camp is waiting to play. Then there's 15 people going and watching. Then there's 30 people going and watching. I'm going like, what the hell's going on over there? So I go watch, and all of a sudden, this guy drops 40, 36 or 40, I forgot what it was, in uh, 16 minutes stop time. The guy was Michael (laughs) Jordan. (laughs) Joe Ward had like eight. All star game comes. (laughs) All-star came guns, and Jordan wins MVP. He gets another, like, 40. Yeah, he was, like, ridiculous. And uh, Joe Ward never recovered. <laughs> I mean, like, it was unbelievable. But yeah, it was Jordan. Moses Malone was the only player that was better than the camp.
0: So what year was that for Jordan yeah. in high school?
1: He was going to be a senior.
0: And nobody, nobody knew about
1: him. Nobody knew about him. Nobody knew about him. Dave Oden knew about him. No one knew about him. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous, the players that attended that, and they all paid half and had to work as waiters or doing something at the camp for the other half. Every great player in the history of New York basketball, I guarantee you played that. I mean, every single great one. I mean, it's... Was Jordan a good waiter? <laughs> I don't know, but he, actually, actually, I think he was a full payer, which is even more bizarre.
2: Insane. Would So... Michael Jordan, you you coach against him when you're at Virginia, and he's at he's at North Carolina. What was Michael Jordan the player like at that time?
1: I'll tell you, there were two freaks in the league at that time. There were two freaks. All right, Len Bias and and Michael Jordan. Because remember, Len Bias was at you know, Len Bias was playing in '84 along with Jordan, and. I mean, Jordan. I mean, the team they played on was ridiculous. Um, basically, what you did was you built a wall against them. I mean, it's, it sounds silly, but I mean, you know, you weren't guarding him with one person. <clears throat> you were bar, you were defending him with a committee. But I mean, and and the way they played, you know, the joke about Dean Smith. Dean Smith guarded Michael okay. Jordan. Uh, in a lot of ways. Because of the way they played, um, it's kind of true. Because everyone was had an impact on the game, but Jordan was ridiculous. And and you know the funny thing, when, while he was at camp, you know, and I say this all the time, he was as nice of he was he was as nice of uh, a person as you'll ever 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 be around. I mean, he was just, he was an unbelievable dude. I mean, like, Five Star Camp changed more lives and built more bridges than anything I can, I, I can even imagine. I mean, it was just, it was a different, different world. It really was. Alonzo Mourning, J.R. Reed. I'm just going through his pictures here. I'm, I'm looking at him. Connie Hawkins spoke. I mean, Brendan Malone. Uh. Michael Malone was a ball boy.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, wasn't even, he wasn't even allowed. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just, it was a different world, man. I mean, it was just an amazing, it was, I am so fortunate for the opportunity to be part of that. And, you know, I always say that they should have done a, uh, they should have they done a, even a better documentary on it. You
2: know Calipari better than anyone. My question was going to be what do people Cal
1: five star? I might have had a winning record against him. I'm not sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he'll, he'll remember. He'll remember. What what do people get wrong about Calipari?
1: One, he's an incredible coach. He's an incredible coach. I mean, like, not a good coach, he's an incredible coach who studies the game and um, relentless in his pursuit of coaching. I mean, Perfect example John Cal Parrott. So he had a team a couple of years ago that he thought could play the 1 1 zone. <clears throat> I played the 1 3 1 lane zone a lot when I was at South Florida, learning from Roy Shipman when I was at Pitt. And uh, Cal worked for Roy as well, but he didn't really study it back then. And every year prior to that, Cal said, You know, I think I, I got a team that could play the 1 3 1. And John Robick, his assistant coach, would go, Oh, Cal's going to call you. Well, Cal call, Cal's clock is different than everyone else's. He can call at any time. He can call at six in the morning, he can call it, you know, eleven thirty, twelve o'clock at night. And he would call me and drive me absolutely crazy for every intricacy, and then he'd put it in and he'd never play it. So a couple of years back, when he had this team that he thought could play the, the defense, he called me and I say a cow. It was late at night. I said Cow. I'm not wasting my time again. Because I know you're not going to play this defense way. Anyway. I said, so like he was well, what happens if they do I said, Cal there's not an answer for everything, you know, because of the way you your length and the way you just start passing lanes and the way you do this, where I said, but I'm not I'm I'm saving my voice you. You you know, like it's not changing you're not you're not putting this defense in. <laughs> but I think the greatest misconception is number one, everyone knows he loves his players. Now he coaches his players really hard. He's not afraid to coach his best player. Back from UB Brown, because we all learned that at five star. Um but I think the other thing is He's the most loyal dude in the world, and there isn't anything and everything anything that he wouldn't do for one of his people. Happy Harrington, I don't know if you know the name. He was a, a women's coach, actually, at uh, that coach that, that Steve, at a school Steve Mayo was coaching out a long time ago that uh, Steve Forbes coached at one time. Happy was part of the Five Star family. He kind of grew up with all of us. He was a great guy, very affable. Obviously, you don't get a name like Happy without being that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had a horrific, uh, while he was coaching a he had a horrific car accident. Uh, lost his life um, driving to the school one morning. And uh, let's put it this way. His family has been taken care of. And, mm-hmm. you know, John was a big part of that. Let's put it that way. Um, Cal is loyal. He's genuine. He cares. He's nutty. And we're all nutty. Um, he's passionate, um, but no one is more loyal than John Calipari. Um, and he is not a good coach. He is an incredible coach because everyone talks about the one and done. We've seen all these one and dones, whether it was Ben Simmons, it was Markel Fultz, whether it was Romeo Langford, whether it was <clears throat> Isaiah Stewart and, and J.D. McDaniels, none of them played in the NCAA tournament. He's coaching these teams and he's coaching them hard and getting them to play for the good of the group and trust each other and compete and understand a shared responsibility and selflessness and playing to their strengths. He doesn't force feed it on them. He basically figures his team out. And that's why his teams are always good at the end of the season. He's an amazing dude. He's an amazing dude. He really is. And people don't realize it. They, They see the screaming and yelling and, you know, the, 30-for-30 30 30 thing on him made. I don't think it made him look good uh, because it really didn't depict how much he really cares and how much he loves his players and how hard he works for them and the relationships that he has with them. He can get nutty, no doubt about it. But he, can, he, he is as loyal as the day is long. He's an incredible friend. Uh, and I think the coaches in that, our time frame, the one thing, we've created a support system for each other that's been really, really good. First call I got when I got let go, John Calipari, second call I got was, was Tom. I mean, that's, we all kind of went through this thing together. That's just the way, you know, that's just the way it is. And that's, that's the way it was. And that's the way it needs to be uh, moving forward. And, and, And even with what we're going through in society today, uh, you know, I think that we've all got to allow ourselves to be coached. I used to always say, you're <clears> going to <throat> cross the line, uh, you're not, you are not—you know—you're saying you want to be coached." Well, you know, and you're saying, "I just say that." You know, I did this on Twitter today. Uh, you're going to graduate everyone who wants to graduate. Well, you know what? I mean, we all need to be coached today in, in, the, in the environment that we're in, the world we're living today with the pandemic we're dealing with, and we all need to want to graduate. So we all need to make good decisions, we all need to be. Understand that we need to do make decisions that for the good of the group. And we all need to understand that this little small sacrifices we're making uh, are minuscule in relation to if we don't make those sacrifices. We need to be a society of, of servant leaders and need servant leaders. We need to serve each other. To do that, we need to make the good decisions uh, in our lives that hopefully can help us continue to have the lives we have and not impact others.
0: Coach, what decision then? And I want to get back to some of these other coaches too. What decision could be made for college basketball? Is there one decision that you could think of that could be made for college basketball that would be the best for everybody?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a hard question. Um, you know, I, I think the big the biggest thing that we need to do in terms of our game, uh, we can't legislate for three hundred and fifty two teams. Just can't do it. Mm-hmm. So we need to, we need, and I, I, you know, we can let, we still have the NCAA tournament, uh, but we need to legislate for the power of five conferences. And then anyone who wants to conduct their business that way can choose to conduct their business that way. But trying to keep 353 schools happy is impossible. So that's one thing that I think we should really, really understand. I think we should understand if a kid uh, puts his name in a draft, doesn't get drafted, he needs to come back be able to come back just just the way just the way it is i mean why would we want to lose these kids why you know you know and i think what's happening and i think we've got to figure out a way and understanding that um and it, this sounds silly we got to have uh and we do have the nabc has obviously has an executive officer officer it's been jim haney and he's been a, a good soldier we've always had a seat at the table but we've never had a voice because jim haney really didn't use that voice. We need someone strong enough to have a seat at the table and a voice at the table, so that we can have a voice that's going to work for the best interest of college basketball. Because that's what Adam Silver is working for—the best interest of the NBA. And and look, he's not trying to uh, cease and desist college basketball, but he's going to do this. He's going he's going to make decisions in the best interest of his shareholders. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think the biggest thing we have to do is we've got to have someone who's going to legitimately make the decisions in the best interest of college basketball uh, separate from the NBA, working with the NBA, but separate from the NBA.
0: Is there, is there a guy right now, a coach right now that you would recommend being yeah. that voice?
1: I think Dan Gavitt would be a great voice. Uh, and I've said it before. I don't know, it has to be a coach. It has to be someone that understands it. He's worked for the NCAA. So he understands that. He understands the bigger picture. He has the respect of the coaches. I mean, it's easy to say Jay Billis. Uh, you know, Jay obviously has the intellectual acumen to understand the big the big picture. Uh, you know, I and, you know, I think he would obviously do well in that position. But I think Dan Gavin is a person who's in the position right in a position that understands the position right now. I think Dan would be a really, really good selection. And I hope that that happens.
2: Coach, what did you learn from Chuck Daly?
1: Chuck Daly recruited my brother. First of all, he loves tea. When he came to recruit my brother, uh, my mom offered him some tea, and then he went on through this whole di- dissertation about uh, about uh, how he just got back from England, and uh, he was a tea connoisseur. But Chuck was, obviously, <laughs> most people say that. We all learned how to dress from Chuck Daly. I mean, the mm-hmm. guy was the best dressed guy yeah. He was impeccable. Um, communicate. You're only as good as the ability to communicate. That was the biggest thing I learned from Chuck Daly. It's not what you know; it's what your players know. It's uh, it's listening, hear, it's uh, understand what you're teaching, how you're teaching, why you're teaching it, um, and then what your players can uh, can obviously uh, digest. Uh, Chuck Taylor was probably the greatest communicator in the history of our game.
0: Yeah, you know, I've talked to a bunch of his of his former players <laughs> about him and just how, and that was exactly right with communicating, and they always knew where they stood not just during a game, but going into every game and every single day and how he cared about people as people, like the stories that we hear about Greg Popovich. Were you ever one interested to offer a job in the NBA?
1: No, I was never offered a job in the NBA. I mean, uh, my brother was obviously in the league for a long time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it always intrigued you. I, I don't. I never thought I had the personality to coach in the NBA. I liked I like <clears throat> being in the gym. I liked Individual workouts. I like, you know, uh, the personal, real relationships that you could have uh, in the college game uh, that might be a little different than that. it wasn't a player uh, in relation to the NBA game.
0: There's a a common thought, coach, that you can't ever you can't be considered the best or at a certain level unless you succeed at the NBA level. Where do you stand on that?
1: Oh, I don't think. I don't think that's real i think coaching is coaching you could be the best of the you know they're great 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 like morgan wood was he not one Mm -hmm. of the best who's ever coached the game in basketball bob hurley senior Mm uh was he not one of the the best that's ever coached the game Um, oh i i agree i i i I don't i don't put just because you coached in the nba is you're, you're in a special class I think that, you know, you coached the NBA because that, that was your chosen choice path, career path. And, uh, you know, it's it's a different game. The NBA game is a different game.
2: We see what the NBA game has become, <clears throat> layups and threes and relying so much on the analytics of where guys want to get shots from. It, how much of what you're seeing now, though, it's it's always interesting to me when you talk to coaches who've been around a long time and around other coaches about how things they see today they they had seen in the past and in other forms and you going back to claire b and labalbo and and then all the guys at five star and everyone you've coached against and in the acc and what have you uh how much of what you're seeing now isn't necessarily new to you i guess
1: well like pack line defense uh which Tony talked has become the master at is basically alababo Coach Iba, volume man defense, taking away splits, you know, closing out on shooters, taking away dribble penetration. That's what that that's what it is. Uh, you know, dribble drive offense uh basically was positionless basketball in a lot of ways. Um and the spacing and then the dribble drive offense begat, you know, some of this analytics of uh of what um what is going on in our game. Um you know, I still remember watching my dad in a park in the five towns where he used to play with Eddie God and Sid Tannenbaum and, and all the great players of his generation run middle ball screens with guys in the corners. <laughs> I mean it sounds silly, but I mean <clears throat> I remember seeing that. I remember pass and cut and move and spacing and uh corner space now it's corner spacing. Now it's a Two way player. Now he's a three and D guy. I mean, come on. I mean, all that stuff has been existed. We just put names on it. Now the analytics aspect of it has, you know, has changed to some extent. Uh, but like, so does that mean all those shots that Oscar Robinson took were bad shots? Because he could get to fifteen feet anytime he wanted and absolutely punch him. So, like, I mean, yeah. like. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of funny how we, how, we, how we look at the game. I think the analytics, is, is, analytics are, are, are in relation to the players that are playing. You can have the threes and the layups and the free throws. If you don't have guys who can shoot threes. Why did three-point shooting go down this year? It went down because the college basketball was three-point back and guys couldn't shoot as well, so the game got uglier because people didn't they shrunk the defense. So we've seen, look, Things have changed in our game. There's no doubt about it. But sometimes more things change, more things remain the same. Positionless basketball has been in Europe forever. We used to make fun of European basketball. What are those big guys doing out there? Don't they have a low post score? What are those <laughs> big guys handling the ball on the perimeter? I mean, those guys are soft. I mean, think about that. That Was, was that not how you would describe European basketball?
0: You're right. For sure. For sure, and, I, well, and I, think, I, think, w- I think many now are starting to realize that <clears throat> that European basketball is a whole lot more physical than many have thought for a long oh, time
1: true. also. Oh, yeah, it should, oh, without a doubt. But the manner in which they played, I mean, all of a sudden, Jokic, he, he's a phenomenon, all right? Sabonis begat him. How mm-hmm. long ago did Sabonis play? You know what I mean? Right, exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, he, he yeah. played
0: so long ago that his son's an all-star <clears throat> now in the NBA. Right. Yeah,
2: <laughs> exactly. exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, coach, uh, a few I mean, more. I mean, we... look at
1: John Church. Yeah. No, sure. Cause I got to wrap up cause I got a big, yeah, so got a big podcast with my Prim today.
0: Oh, oh, there you go. Tell Prim we said hello. Let's wrap it up with a few yeah, quick hitters. Uh, your brother, Brad was GM of the Sixers when they drafted Iverson. Your favorite Iverson story.
1: Brad calling and saying he's got to spine him again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, hold on. Did you say, I mean, did you say fine or find
1: no, fine, <laughs> Find him again. Oh, Cause fine. Because Alan's come mother on, you know. called to come up with some excuse. Um, but I, I, my favorite Iverson story is true story. I, uh, the year he got into the Hall of Fame, I went to the ceremony where I was out of town. And uh, I introduced myself because I never met Alan. And uh, he gave me a big hug. He said, Your brother was my man. I love that guy. And that meant a lot to me that he would say that. Um and the other thing is that the one thing Brad told me about him is that dude never took a day off. Like like when that light went on, when the light went on, he was the hardest playing, toughest dude there was. He never took the game off. And um you know for that, you know, let's face it, I mean there was there, there was no there was no um, load management trial in everson,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Maybe practice management. And now we look back at it, we see really happy the NBA guys really practice. (laughs) But uh, Alan was Alan was special, and uh, you know he was probably one of the most competitive dudes that's ever played.
2: What was it like to be at the Willis Reed game?
1: That was pretty cool, man. I was 13 years old, last seat of the guard behind the baskets. Those seats don't exist anymore; they're boxes. Um. Uh, it was, and I, but I had a good view of him coming out of the tunnel that no longer exists. It kills me to go to the garden. Now. Just kills me. Cause I, you know, when I was coaching, I had a chance to coach a couple of times before they renovated the garden. And every time I did, I'd, I'd walk through that thing and I, I literally would stop. I'd literally stop and look out on the court and it would bring me back to me at 13 years old. Um, that was unbelievable. I remember, mm-hmm. like just turning to my dad, like turning to my dad, going, like, awestruck, <laughs> just awestruck. I mean, like, oh my god! And uh, that was uh, that 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 team. I mean, I you know I again. I'm sixty six years old. I mean, I, I watched those games on WOR with the bunny ears, trying to twist <laughs> it so I could get a better reception. And uh, I had the Sports Illustrated with Bill Bradley coming to Broadway. I mean, uh, you know, I I know I look, uh, I'm very well preserved, but I mean, <laughs> th- those were amazing. Those were amazing. I remember, I remember, I remember taking the train in from Hicksville, uh, Dad meeting us at the train station, and in, uh, in Grand Central Station or Penn Station depending on how we came in and going over to Thursday Night Doubleheaders as a little kid or going to the holiday festival, uh, seeing Donnie May play, seeing Kazi Russell play, um, seeing Bill Bradley play. Um, so, like, when I coached, we won the holiday festival two years in a row uh, when I was at Virginia Tech. Like, that was an emotional thing for me. Like, it was just a stinking. We beat St. John's both times. And it was, you know, for other guys, it back then, then it was just a 14-tournament. Uh, Or now, when we won it. But that was like a cool thing for me. That was kind of like the circle of life for me. Like, I'm coaching the Holiday Festival, ECAC Holiday Festival, all at Macro. I remember as a kid sitting right up there, you know, going and getting an Enix orange and, uh, you know, and a hot dog (laughs) watching these games. I mean, that was, you know, that was part of my childhood. And then falling asleep, the Thursday night double heads, we do about once a month, and falling asleep on the train going home.
2: And That's now you're one time, of the but... Yeah, and now you're one of the uh the faces of college basketball. It's pretty pretty incredible. I don't know, know about
1: that. I've been I've been <laughs> I've been ridiculously blessed. And, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a shout out, Adam, because when I first came to ESPN, I was scared shitless, I had no idea what to expect, and you and your boy retail Rick uh, <laughs> took me under your wing and took the time and Barry Sachs and the Rob Lemleys and, uh, and uh, the Steve Ollings and the Lee Fittings and all you guys. It took me at a time where I was most vulnerable after getting fired, having to move my family, literally had no idea what I'm going to do with my life. And You guys were absolutely incredible, and I can't thank you enough.
2: Oh, I appreciate it. It runs both ways, That's Coach. Nice. You uh you're super, super talented, as I've I've often said. Um, one of the best analysts I've ever been around, if not the best. Um, before we let you go, coach, we we always I should end the podcast right there because no, he just was complimenting me. You might have heard well, I'm probably that, gonna so. edit that out <laughs> of you. Yeah, you probably, probably should. But that. we last question is <laughs> we're rejecting the screen. So one guy you've ever coached against, played against, uh, in your entire career commentated on. Um, that you would choose end a game situation. You needed a bucket. Who would you choose <laughs> to reject the screen, go ISO, and get you a bucket? And you can't say Jordan.
1: And you can't say better one. I'll give you. I'll give you a greater one. one the greatest ball screen. One of the three best ball screen players in the history of the game. Because I took my Long Beach State team to play the Canadian Junior National team when I was at Long Beach State, and we played a six game series against them. And they had this little floppy-haired guard that was only a sophomore or junior in high school, maybe a junior in high school He's going to be a senior he was going to be a senior. and he was pretty good, and he actually ended up practicing with us. He was a basketball junkie, and because we practiced in the afternoon, they just shot uh in between games. he'd always be in the gym, so he just he literally practiced with us uh six or seven days. Now we kicked their ass. Every single night, Bobby Sears wore him out. But he later became, and he wanted to come to Long Beach State. And in all all my infinite wisdom, I said, Bobby Sears kicked your ass every single day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Steve Nash. Amazing. And so they're in the NCAA tournament with us in Utah. And this is two years later. And um, they were really good. <clears throat> obviously. And uh, at the press conference, um, they were in the press conference, so I asked, so I set a load congratulate him on that. And he got in the press conference, he said, he said, Yeah, I'm here representing Santa Clair, but I wanted to play for Coach Greenberg, I wanted to play with those one to stake guys. <laughs> 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 so that was another one of my great decisions. Wait, hard to evaluate. Down. I got yeah. not easy to evaluate. <laughs> All right,
3: you're so I put the put best it, I coach.
1: I'd put it in Nash's hand, and he would either keep his dribble alive and go underneath the basket uh, <laughs> and find someone for a layup, or he'd circle out, shake a guy, jump up, and knock down a three.
2: <laughs> Just don't let him go baseline. Don't let him go baseline, Hold coach.
1: My, he'll keep that dribble alive and torture <laughs> you. I promise you that. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you. Guys, be good, man. Stay safe. Thank you, Take coach.
2: To your Enjoyed it. You, you well. too. Thanks, All coach.
0: It's another guy with, with stories for days. And so I want to go back to what he said about you, as we wrap this up, Mm -hmm. about how you were able to coach him and, and take, and take him under his wing when, when he got to ESPN, so what was your role at the time? And do you remember any of those first interactions with him?
2: Uh yeah I mean I remember it's just funny I remember seeing him actually in the hallway knowing that he was about to join us and I felt like I was familiar with him because he was on ESPN every year because he was talking about how Virginia Tech should have been in the field and was left oh, right. out yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh so 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 you got familiar with his face and his voice but but pretty early on I was producing segments for Sports Center in which we'd come up with something like how to take down a uh one of the top teams in the country, you know, as a, as an underdog. How do you pull off the upset? What's the art of the upset? Things like that. And and so we were crafting segments like that and he would go through and he's so detailed and he's got a great basketball mind. And I think I think the the biggest thing though I learned early on was that and what I've said about all great analysts and and Noah you've worked with a, a bunch yourself, but why I put him right there at the top you he can do anything. If you want to get deep into the analytical Aspects of basketball, he can go there. If you want to have him tell stories or anecdotal stuff, he can go there. If it's serious, you bring him on to talk about serious topics. If it's heartfelt, if it's if it's jovial, if if it's supposed to be something funny, he can go wherever you need him to go. But early on, Rick Angelo and I were working on those Sports Center shows, trying to find different ways to use him, and we always wanted to put him in different avenues in the show that we could that we could show people just how funny he was how affable he was how Mm -hmm. how much of a great basketball brain he was and i think all that stuff was was pretty awesome we got we got pretty lucky
0: so whenever college basketball returns i'm sure you'll see plenty of seth on espn you can continue listening to us every tuesday and thursday we're just going to have long-form interviews with everybody and everybody who has touched the nba in some way go back and listen to all those going iso editions of rejecting the screen i promise you it'll help you get through some times you can follow Adam on Twitter at Naismith lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Also, right now, if you're using the Postmates, you can use the code NBA and get, for seven days, you can get $100 free for Postmates. So try that during this difficult time that we're all going through. And check out everything else going on on the Lockdown Podcast Network, Hollinger and Duncan, Locked On NBA, five days a week. Locked on Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd and then every team every day still throughout this suspended period in the league. Adam, thanks pal.
2: You are the best. And so Seth...